Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Hey man, y'all can have a seat. Well, every year... For the last 20 years, Gallup has conducted a poll asking Americans to assess their own mental health. Basically, just a self-reported, how are you doing, how are you feeling kind of a poll every year for the last 20 years. It probably doesn't surprise you to find out that the scores were very, very bad this past year. In 2020, we felt more isolated, alone, depressed, and anxious than at any other point since they started doing the poll, and not even by a little bit by eight percentage points, lower than at any other year, by eight percentage points. Now, when Gallup does this poll, they also ask you demographic information, and they, they kind of put you into different subgroups, right? And every year, they usually find that certain subgroups experience worse mental health based on what has happened, the circumstances and events of any given year, but not in 2020. Literally every single subgroup experienced a decline in mental health last year. Every race, gender, political affiliation, age, sexual orientation, marital status, and household income, every subgroup experienced a decline. And I want to remind us, these aren't just like statistics on a page, right? We can look at them, we can read them, we can think they're interesting, but we have to remember these numbers represent our family and friends. They represent me and you, because we've been through a lot, y'all. We've lost loved ones to COVID. We've lost jobs. We've struggled with anxiety and depression. We've felt alone. I was telling a friend yesterday, I don't think we'll understand the collective trauma inflicted upon us over the last 18 months for at least another decade. And we're not out of it yet. It's no wonder the Gallup poll showed that every subgroup of people saw a decline in their mental health last year. Well, every group that is except one. Every group except one. One group of people who actually saw an increase in their mental health from 2019 to 2020. Any ideas who that might be? People deeply committed to a religious community. One subgroup. The Gallup poll showed that the only group of people able to navigate the year 2020 in a way that actually improved their mental health were, quote, weekly religious service attenders, and that could be online or in person. Even during the nightmarish year we just had, folks who were deeply committed to their religious community experienced not a decrease, but a four-point increase 
in mental health and rated their mental health 12 points higher than the average American last year. That's, that's incredible. That's incredible. But this is bigger than just one Gallup poll. Did you know that research done by psychologists and social scientists universally support the conclusions that commitment to a healthy faith community is good for human health? I can point you to, to dozens of studies that show that religious engagement leads to higher levels of physical health, resilience, happiness, pro-social behavior, and altruism. This is especially fascinating if you consider that the father of modern psychology, Sigmund Freud, believed that all religion was an illusion comparable to childhood neuroses, and he discouraged all of his patients from practicing it. So for an entire field of study to move from believing that religion is damaging to seeing it as one of the best indicators of human health in just a few decades illustrates really just how powerful this really is. So why am I talking about all of this? I'm talking about it because we need each other. We need each other now more than ever. And it's not just me telling you that. It's not even just God and the scriptures telling you that, that I'm going to dive into in just a second. This is secular polling, psychological analysis, and even scientific research. They're all saying the same thing. I just, well, just pause for a second. Let's just stop and think how crazy it is that all of those groups came to the same conclusion on something. God, the Bible, pastors, psychologists, researchers, social scientists, academics, and pollsters, all of them came to the same conclusion on this thing. People deeply committed to religion and people who couldn't care less all agree that commitment to a healthy religious community promotes human flourishing. Commitment to a healthy religious community promotes human flourishing. Now, big disclaimer, I'm not up here talking about this because I want Restore to like grow really big or become some kind of a mega church. I have no desire for that. In fact, we are constantly actually launching people and resources out to start new churches and new ministries instead of hoarding them here. In fact, we have a sister church that we launched out starting tonight on campus at UT, Moon Tower Church, tonight. Yeah, y'all give that a round of applause. I'm not telling you this because I want to, like, grow some big organization. I'm telling you this because I want you, each of you, to experience the fullness of life that Jesus talks about, that he wants for you. I want you to be surrounded by people who love you without qualification. I want you to be locked arms with people who would do anything to support you. And I want you to have something healthy and life-giving to hold on to especially during the most challenging couple of years that most of us have ever experienced. So today, we begin our first series in A Year Around the Table. Now, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, you're wondering what A Year Around the Table is. Basically, we're going to spend the next year walking through what it looks like to embody this vision that God has given us, for Restore to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table, and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. We believe that is what God has called us to do and what, uh, what he's called us to be about. So throughout this fall and spring, we're going to discover practical ways to live this vision out in each of our lives and in our church family. And we're going to do this by putting these six measures into practice. These are markers of someone who is seated at Jesus' table and doing everything they can to follow him. Here's what they are. I depend on Jesus. I am a part of the family. 
I live invitationally. I pursue justice for the marginalized. I look for ways to be generous, and I include everyone. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next year. Last week, I talked about how depending on Jesus is the foundation for everything we do. But today, we're starting our very first series inside of this larger year. And it's called Part of the Family. Part of the Family. So over the next few weeks, we are going to focus in on what it looks like to be a part of God's family and a part of this family here at Restore. And we're going to focus in on it by looking at something called the Sermon on the Mount. Raise your hand up if you've heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, most of us. And more specifically, the Lord's Prayer inside of it. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Lord's Prayer. Raise your hand if you didn't know that the Lord's Prayer is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I mean, I, I did, but I was modeling. Most people, a lot of people don't know that, right? We think of the Lord's Prayer as just kind of its own little thing, kind of divorced from everything else. This is actually a part of Jesus' largest teaching time on the Sermon on the Mount. So my guess is right now you're probably asking one of two questions. If you're really familiar with the Bible and you have a lot of church background, you're probably asking, why are we using the Sermon on the Mount to talk about being a part of God's family? And if you aren't as familiar with the Bible and you don't have much church background, you're probably asking, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think I can answer both of those questions in one explanation. The Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of God's family. Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of God's family. Jesus delivers this famous message at the height of his popularity. It is his magnum opus, the message that will undergird every other message he ever gives. And it's really cool, actually. The Sermon on the Mount is viewed by both religious and non-religious people alike, by scholars and academics, as one of the most influential speeches ever given in the history of humanity. I love how Philip Yancey describes the Sermon on the Mount in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He says, though I have tried at times to dismiss it as rhetorical excess, the more I study Jesus, the more I realize that the statements contained here lie at the heart of his message. If I fail to understand this teaching, I fail to understand him. Jesus delivered the famous sermon at a time when his popularity was soaring. Crowds pursued him wherever he went, obsessed with one question, has the Messiah, the Savior, come at last? This long-awaited Savior. And on this unusual occasion, Jesus skipped the parables and he granted his audience a full-blown philosophy of life, somewhat like a candidate unveiling a new political platform. And what a platform it is. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, it really is Jesus' political platform in the truest sense of the term. You see, we get our word politics from the Greek word politika, which means the affairs of the community. The affairs of the community. Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount in order to shape the affairs of Christian community. That was the purpose of this message. It's the constitution of God's family, the outline of the way we are meant to live and move in this world together. And that's why you can't divorce this sermon from community. You can't take it away and make it just individualistic because without community, it's just an unachievable individual standard. But within community, it becomes the cooperative manifestation of the body of Christ on earth. It is truly wonderful and amazing. As we begin to see the whole Sermon on the Mount in that light, it actually transforms our understanding of the Lord's Prayer as well. So it's no longer just something we recite before meals or football games. It is an exercise of spiritual formation for our community 
as we pursue Jesus' calling as God's family together. So over the next few weeks, we're going to walk line by line through the, sermon, or through the Lord's Prayer together, seeking to model our lives and our church family after it. So I want to start today by saying the Lord's Prayer out loud together. You ready? Masks and all. You can do it. Okay. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Nice job. Very nice. Now, how many people became disinterested about halfway through that? You were like, this is boring, I've done this a million times, or this is boring, I've heard this a million times, or whatever. That prayer has become rote for us. It has become just a exercise, just something that we do when somebody tells us to do it or somebody else is doing it. I told you guys about going to New Mexico, right, as a family last month, and we went to this, I told you about the UTV accident, and that was a crazy, if you didn't hear that story, I'll tell you later, it was intense. But afterwards, on the ranch, there was this big cowboy dinner. And before the cowboy dinner, it was like 300 of us. We all stood up in this big outdoor tent. We all had like steaks and potatoes and was about to have a country music band play. And they were like, let's say the Lord's Prayer. I was like, cool. All right. I don't know. It feels weird, but let's do it. You know, Lord's Prayer is good all the time. But it's like, this is just a part of society. It's like a part of culture. We don't even really think about it anymore, what it says, what it means. So that's why over these next few weeks, we're really going to walk line through line. And we're going to try to kind of, kind of rediscover what it means, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a family of God. So let's start at the beginning. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 9, this then is how you should pray. This then is how you should pray. I want to pause here. Now, whenever you read a sentence like this in Scripture, it should cause you to pause. Because words like then or therefore give us a clue that what we're about to read is conditioned upon what just came before it. Does that make sense? So if-then statements or therefore statements, it gives us a clue that we need to be looking backwards and seeing. So it should cause us, this verse, to ask questions like, well, why was Jesus giving his followers a new way to pray? What was wrong with the way that they'd been praying before? So we backtrack a little bit, and we see the context, and we get the answer. Now, I bet I say this every other week, but I'm going to say it again. We cannot overstate the importance of reading Scripture in context. We cannot overstate it. If I, if I could teach all of you anything, it would be to understand and read Scripture in context. I had a seminary professor who used to say, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. You like that? Text without context is a pretext for a proof text. Proof texting is using a verse or a passage to prop up an ideology that Jesus and the whole of Scripture doesn't actually support, right? And I told you earlier about the sign that was out in front of the mosque, right? It was horrible. Again, I'm not going to get into it. It had a Bible verse on it, all right? And it was about how God thinks that Muslims are gross and hates them and, and they're awful and unclean and they're like pig's blood. And like it was awful, okay? And it had a Bible verse on it, right? That is proof texting. That is taking a Bible verse and making it prop up whatever ideology you hold when in fact Jesus in the scripture would actually probably teach completely against it. That's proof texting. So that's why we look at the context of scripture. So here's the context of Jesus giving his followers a new way to pray. The verses leading up to it. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he says, this then is how you should pray. So the context is that the religious leaders were perverting prayer for their own selfish gain. They prayed loudly in the synagogues and the street corners. Those were actually the places in society that maximized their own publicity and social status and opportunity to make money. That's why they prayed in those places. That's why they prayed loudly. That's why they prayed with many words. That was the whole point. But Jesus knew that performative religious practice is always for the benefit of an individual, never for the benefit of the community. I want to say that again because that is important. Performative religion is always for the benefit of an individual and never for the benefit of a community. When you're just putting on an act, it's about you. It is not about brothers and sisters. It is not about the good of humanity. He also knew that this wasn't just what the religious leaders were doing. It's what they were teaching the people to do as well, right? Because what gets celebrated gets emulated. When you see the religious leaders doing it, you feel like you're supposed to be doing it. And I love this because it's yet another example of Jesus seeing that God's family needs some deconstructing and reconstructing of their faith. The way they were praying was unhelpful and ultimately ungodly. But the solution, it wasn't just to throw out prayer altogether. The solution was to reconstruct an understanding of prayer so that the people could better follow the way of Jesus. So that's what he does. He says, don't pray like that. Pray like this. So with the rest of our time together, we're going to look at the first couple of lines of this prayer, the foundation of it. It goes like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I feel like we often skip over these opening lines. I mean, we say them, but we don't really think about them because they kind of feel like a greeting, right? It's almost like it's the top part of the letter that says like, dear so-and-so or to whom it may concern, right? It's like the addressing of like who the prayer goes to. God is the one we should address our prayers to, so it makes sense that Jesus would start our prayer that way, and so we just kind of move past it. This is the opening. But notice that Jesus doesn't say, dear God. He doesn't even say, oh Lord, hear our prayer, which would have been a more common expression. He says, our Father. Our Father. Two words, but radically important for us. Because this was really different language than was usually used in prayers, especially those performative religious ones that the religious leaders were famous for. See, other ancient religions, they sometimes referred to their gods as fathers, but really only in kind of the patriarchal, oppressive sense. Jesus is doing something brand new here. He is saying that our God is not distant or cold. He is close and kind. Our relationship with him is meant to be one of intimacy and deep love. The word that Jesus uses for father here is the Greek term pater. Our best translation is simply dad. This is like Jesus starting the prayer and being like, our dad. God is not just the distant father of the universe. He is our intimately loving dad. And Jesus, Jesus wants us to see him that way. 
He wants us to understand that God is the most wonderfully nurturing and supportive father that we could ever imagine. Because that's who he is. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus elaborates on this idea. He says, your par- you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, I realize that some of y'all, maybe many of y'all, didn't have very good dads. Some were trying their best, and others were just downright mean. And I know that experiences we've had with our earthly fathers can often cloud the beauty of our heavenly fathers. But I want to tell you, your dad in heaven is better than you could ever dream of. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And it gets even better because Jesus says that God isn't just my father or your father. He is our collective father. Because Christianity is a communal faith meant to be lived alongside one another. You see, the church, we are a family of siblings. We're not meant to be hierarchical with some people serving as parents and other people serving as children, but with all of us being brothers and sisters with God as our father. The Bible also frequently depicts God as our mother who nurses and protects and comforts us. Obviously, the point is not God's gender. The point is that we are a family of siblings, and God is our parent who loves and cares for us deeply. The foundational truth of this prayer, and really the foundational truth of how Christians are meant to live and move in this world, is that we are a part of God's family. We are his children. That is our identity. We are called to follow him as our parent and to care for our siblings together. But here's the thing. Living out a communal faith in a hyper-individualistic society is difficult, right? Living out a communal faith in the hyper-individualistic society we live in is hard. I'm convinced the biggest obstacle to being a part of God's family in deep and meaningful ways is our culture's obsession with individualism. As I said last week, the myth of self-sufficiency is the enemy of living in community with our sisters and brothers in Christ. We cannot live this life alone. We are not made to. We were never meant to. We need Jesus and we need each other. Being a part of God's family means rejecting the lie that we can do everything on our own and embracing the truth that God designed us for deep community. I want to say that again. Being a part of God's family means rejecting the lie that we can do everything on our own and embracing the truth that God designed us for deep community. It means showing up for your siblings when they're in need and allowing them to support you when you are struggling, which sometimes is even harder. So what could this look like? What kinds of things would God do in and through our church if we were truly a family where anyone had a seat at the table and everyone experienced the extravagant love of Jesus, if we truly saw each other as siblings? Well, I think it could look a lot like the story of Michael K. Williams. Do you all know who Michael K. Williams is? Anybody? Michael passed away this week at the age of 54. 
after a long battle with addiction. He was a prolific actor, known for a recurring role on Boardwalk Empire and in movies like The Road, Gone Baby Gone, and 12 Years a Slave. But he was best known for playing Omar Little on The Wire. Has anybody ever seen The Wire? Greatest television show in history, I'm not even, to be honest with you. And I think Omar was the best character. So that makes Michael K. Williams the portrayer of the best character on the best television show in history. Now, despite, or during an especially difficult battle with substance abuse, actually while filming one of the seasons of The Wire, Michael went back home and stumbled into a church in New Jersey desperate for help. And here's how Michael described the encounter. He said, when I came through those doors, I was broken. This was, I would say, around the third season of The Wire. I was on drugs. I was in jeopardy of destroying everything I had worked so hard for. And I came in those doors, and I met a man who had never heard of The Wire, much less even watched it. I wrote my full name down, Michael Kenneth Williams. And in the office, Reverend Ronald Christian turns around and he says, so what do you want to be called, man? And I said, well, you know, my name is Michael, but I, but I could do Mike, whatever you want. He says, well, why does everybody keep saying Omar's in trouble? You got to help Omar. Omar's in trouble. And I thought to myself, oh, this dude is clueless about the wire. It had nothing to do with Hollywood fame or who I was in my job. He was doing this with me because he cared for me. It was basic human being stuff. He and I have been joined at the hip ever since. And one of his biggest sayings was, quote, I'm going to love you until you learn to love yourself. He never judged, he just nudged. Oh, I love that. <laughs> he never judged, he just nudged. And I'm not saying he accepted me in my dysfunctionalism, but he loved me in it. He loved me in it, and there's a difference. There's a fine line. There's a huge difference with, with that, and it worked. It worked for me. Michael stumbled into a church in New Jersey with a pastor and a church family who did not care what he did for a living, did not care how famous he was, did not care how many Emmys he was nominated for. They loved him because he was a human right in front of them. He found the family of God with all its beautiful imperfections, and it changed everything for him. Michael calls that congregation Gangster Church. But its real name is simply Christian love. That's what the church is called. Oh, I almost renamed our church when I read this. I was like, dang, Christian love, that's so good. And as Reverend Ron likes to say, it's a place where welfare and Wall Street pray side by side, where cops and former most wanted hold hands in worship. And Reverend Ron often reminds his church family that, quote, anything is possible with Jesus Christ. When we truly understand that we are all siblings and we choose to collectively trust Jesus, to abide in him, anything is possible. This is God's design for church. This is God's design for his family. This is what it's all about. It's what it's all about. So to help us remember and celebrate that, we are going to finish our gathering today with communion and then our table benediction that we've been saying every week. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite the band back up, and then we're going to take communion and do the benediction together. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for Jesus. 
The fact that you saw a world that was broken and hurting, you saw us struggling to pull our own selves up by our bootstraps, and you put on flesh and came to earth. God, and you showed us what we were always supposed to do, what humanity was always supposed to look like. You showed us what it means to be a family, and you taught us so beautifully in this Sermon on the Mount what we are supposed to look like and move like in the world. Thank you for the Lord's Prayer. Thank you for coming in and correcting prayer patterns we had that were unhelpful and ungodly and replacing them with this beautiful prayer that starts out with the recognition of you as our dad, our loving parent, and each other as siblings. God, I join with the millions and millions of others saying, hallowed be your name, God. Glory to you for this, for this love, for this family. I pray that as we take communion together in just a moment, you would impress upon us what it really means to share a table together, to break bread together, to find unity in our diversity around you and your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.